Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In the Bible, both the psalmist and the author of Hebrews ask rhetorically, what is man? What is man? And throughout history, there are all kinds of answers to that question. The zoologist famously said, man is just a naked ape. Marxists would say, man is the essence of his labor. Existentialists would say, man is the expression of his decision-making, his will, his volition. Hedonists would say he's a product of his sensuality and sexuality. The raw naturalist would say he's just a mere accident of evolution. And believe it or not, some of the best thinkers and philosophers and scientists of our day suggested that man was simply seated here by aliens or that we're part of a massive computer simulation. We're not even real. What is man? What are you? What am I? Why does it matter? I'm going to suggest to you that though we don't often think along these lines, the reason it matters is because the way we answer these questions strike to the very nature of how we make decisions, what we think matters, how and whom we love, why we believe we're drawing breath. We've told you before, and let me repeat this morning, because we're in the Old Testament, the Older Testament of the Bible, and one of the things you need to do, especially when you study the Old Testament, is you need to ask two fundamental questions. When you're reading and studying the Old Testament, look for two basic fundamental questions. Look for the answers to these questions. The first question is, what does this text tell me about God? From reading the Old Testament, what do I learn about the God? Usually it's the God of Israel because Israel is the main storyline of the Old Testament. What does this text tell me about God? The second question you have to ask is, what does this text tell me about me? What does it tell me about mankind? What does it tell me about sinners? What do I learn about the nature of humanity from this text, from this encounter? And the text this morning in the book of Genesis, we're going to consider both of those things. We've read over the last few weeks and we've studied Genesis 1 about man being created in the image and likeness of the Creator, man and woman both reflecting the image and likeness of God. And the text today unpacks that reality. It gives us further details. It's an elaboration on the nature of our Creator that we bear. And therefore, it's got practical application for the way we live our lives every day we draw breath. Today we find verses that flesh out what man and what woman, in what ways each of us reflect God's image, and also we find instructions about what we saw a couple of weeks ago with the creation mandate. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2, early in the record of the Word of God in the Bible, and here's what we find in Genesis 2, if I could have you think of it this way. Genesis 1 has an account of creation which is chronological, and it's a panoramic view. It's over the six days of creation. Genesis 1 sets the stage. Then in chapter 2, it's almost like a flashback 
There's a, there's a close-up, as it were. It zooms in. The camera zooms in and revisits the details, especially of day six. And then what we're going to find in a few weeks when we finally land in chapter three, which is a dark chapter in the Bible, but when we land in chapter three, we find that's a real close-up because we find a day in the life. And of course, it's a dark day, a dark day in the life of Adam and Eve. So chapter one, you have the panorama of creation. You have the overview of the six days. Chapter two, we find specifics about those six days as the camera zooms in in a flashback. And then when we land in chapter three, we're going to find a very dark day in the life of Adam and Eve, God's ultimate creation. And so here we are. After chapter one was arranged chronologically, what we find is that chapter two is arranged topically. It's not necessarily the case that we should read chapter 2 as this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and this happened, unlike chapter 1, but rather it's arranged as I think you'll see topically, and we will handle most of it this morning. Next week, we'll look at the probation of the, the forbidding of the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then the following week, Pastor Dave will talk to us about the creation of Eve and the glory of marriage. For today, let me read for you, and please follow along, Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, and we'll read down through verse 15 today. And as we read, I remind you, as I do often, this is God's word for us today. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when there was no bush of the field, When no bush of the field was set in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the earth, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the bread of life, breath of life, and the man became a living creature." The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made it to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers, The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. This is God's word for us today. Have you ever imagined what life was like for Adam and Eve? Not before the fall, but after the fall. It's part of the great mystery of the book of Genesis that Adam lived a long time. And he and Eve were together for decades, centuries together. We won't handle those difficulties right now. But imagine what that was like. Imagine how often they must have 
struggled with the issue of regrets. How often they must have said, remember what it was like? How often they must have reflected in the good old days. How often they knew what they had and what they had lost. Remember what Genesis 1 says in verse 31, describing the end of the sixth day? And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was, say it with me, very good. And Adam and Eve, for the rest of their long, long, long lives, Adam and Eve dealt with the issue of all that they had lost. And they surely had to ask, what happened here? Why did we lose it all? Why are things the way they are? And I want to tell you that there's a sense in which surely every person on the face of the earth asks that question at one time or another. Why are things the way they are? It seems like things should be different. This doesn't seem right. What happened here? What happened here? Well, the Bible tells us what happened. In fact, that's specifically what verse 4 is about. Would you look at that with me? In verse 4, we find God essentially saying, this is what happened to the heavens and earth. In verse 4, it says, these are the generations. Some of our translations say these are the records. Uh, others record it, these are the accounts. These are the generations of the heavens and earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now you find this theme repeated throughout the book of Genesis. It's really a milestone in the book over and over again. For example, turn over with me for just a moment to chapter 5 and look at verse 1. There we read this. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Go over to chapter 6 and look at verse 9. Chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And you have the same division marker all the way through the book of Genesis. I believe it's about 11 times you can find it throughout Genesis. And essentially what the author is saying, what Moses is saying, it's a literary landmark. It's a literary, if you could say it this way, if you wanted to, a chapter division that basically says, let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you what happened to the family of Adam. And then you have the record of the events after, um, after the fall and before the flood. Let me tell you what happened to the family of Noah. And here the author says, let me tell you what happened to the heavens and the earth. Because you have questions. We have questions. When we read about the garden, when we read about Eden, we wonder, how could everything have gone so wrong? This is what happened to the heavens of the earth and the earth in chapter 4, verse 4 of chapter 2. And I should point out, if you look at verse 4 one more time, that you'll notice the phrase, the Lord God, or Yahweh Elohim. Now, this is interesting because if you noticed back in chapter 1, you may not remember, but we talked about the word for God there is a somewhat generic word. It's the word for the powerful God. It's, it, it's a generic word for God, just like our English word God. It can apply to different perceptions of deity depending on the context. And that's the way Elohim is used in Hebrew in chapter 1. But then you get to chapter 2 and all of a sudden there's God described in a more personal and a more specific way. The Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. This is a fairly unusual construction in the Old Testament 
But what you have here is you have a consistent presentation of chapter 1, which is the overall sovereign, transcendent work of the Creator. But then in chapter 2, here's what you're going to find. All of a sudden, He's not just the sovereign, transcendent Creator. He's also the personal God. And Yahweh is His name of relationship. We see it in our Bibles, nearly all our Bibles, with L-O-R-D, capitalized, Lord in capital letters. And that represents this unique name for God. And so as the specifics, now we're going to drill down into his personal work. What we find is we find that this God who is transcendent is also imminent. He's also involved. He is not just God, Elohim, but he is also Yahweh, Elohim, the Lord God, which is his personal name. Now, I have to acknowledge, because some of you may remember it, some people think this is a contradiction in the Bible. And in fact, some people, skeptics, over the last especially two to three hundred years, they have chopped up the book of Genesis based on what name for God is used. And so there are all kinds of theories about that, but it's called the documentary hypothesis, although unfortunately it's not really presented as a hypothesis, it's taught as though it's absolute truth. And skeptics, if you took a class in comparative religions at a secular university, you may have been taught this, that the book of Genesis was just put together by, it was, it was a, a record of different legends, of different myths, and some editor, called a redactor, took all of these writings and put them together. And so some of them God is called Elohim, and in some of them God is called Lord God, or Yahweh Elohim, and you have other names for God throughout the book. And so it's, it's the, the book is a mishmash. Now here's the problem with that. There are a lot of problems with it. But one of the problems is this, is that there's an acknowledgement that the author, the redactor, if you want to adopt that view, is an astonishingly gifted author. The way he puts together the book of Genesis is astonishing. And that same theory basically says, see, what you have is chapter 1, you have one record of creation, and then in chapter 2, you have a completely different record of creation. This theory puts chapter 1 and chapter 2 against each other. He pits these two against, this, the position pits the two against each other, as though it's a contradiction. Well, the problem, there are many problems, but one of the problems with that is that if the author is so gifted, and he is, everyone acknowledges he is, why wouldn't he resolve the contradictions? If he's just putting together stories and making up stories based on legends, why wouldn't he resolve the tensions and the contradictions? What you have here is you have different names of God used because there's a very specific recognition of the work of God in chapter 1 as the creator God over all things. And then chapter 2, he's not just the creator God of all things, but he also is the personal God who cares about his creation. And that's what we find. We just happen to believe the Bible. We, we, we believe that this is God's Word. If I can quote for a moment John Piper, we, regarding the Bible, we agree with James. We believe it is able to save souls. We agree with Peter. By it, we grow with respect to salvation. We agree with Paul. It is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. We agree with John. It gives assurance that we have eternal life. We agree with Isaiah, it is eternal, will never pass away. And we agree with Moses, and more importantly, we agree with Jesus, who both say, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
And so chapter 2 is an elaboration of what we find in chapter 1, and we believe that it's accurate and historical. Now to that end, here's what we find today. We learn much about our own design and origin, and we learn more about our Creator God. So let's talk first of all about mankind. Let me show you what we find here, beginning in verse 7. Let me show this to you. We find here mankind's original, first of all, mankind's original physicality. Pardon me for the word. It was the best I could come up with. If you knew some of my other options, you'd be glad I landed on physicality. Mankind's original physicality or his creatureliness. That's what we find in chapter 7. Look at it in verse 7, excuse me, chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. Formed is a craftsman word. It's a unique word from chapter 1. It's, it's a word that has to do with his involvement. We know that God is spirit. He doesn't have a body, and yet it implies a picture of a workman working with his skilled hands. This is skilled working and working with material. He formed Adam, evidently, out of the dust of the ground. Now, let me just remind you, he didn't have to do so. So he did so for a reason. This is our physicality. By the way, we've talked often and will continue to talk about cultural memories that reflect the original creation. In ancient Near East writings, you find several accounts of the gods creating man on a potter's wheel, which is this idea of being formed, a skilled craftsman. And all of that is a reflection back in cultural memory to the original creation, that God formed man out of the dust of the ground. And so you have this new name for the, for the creator. You have this personal name of God and a verb that talks about his personal attention, his creativity, the care that he gives. And by the way, this continues. Later on in the Bible, in Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14, we read this. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame he remembers that we are what? Dust. He remembers that we are dust. And so what you have here in chapter 2 is you have Moses going back and reflecting on the way that chapter 1 happened. In chapter 1, verse 27, let us make man in our own image, and our own likeness. And now Moses goes back and says, let me tell you how this happened. And it happened with this personal Lord God who was a craftsman and he created and made and formed Adam out of the dust of the ground. I, let me just give you another Bible study hint here. If all you had was chapter 1, and you drew your conclusions from chapter 1, you wouldn't know this. You have to be careful in studying the Bible that you make conclusions, but you hold those conclusions tentatively, because as you keep reading, the theological term is progressive revelation. As God continues to make himself known through the word, you may find a clarity or you may find a, a, a clarifying perspective that you didn't have originally. You've got to be careful. This is the danger of staking an entire theological system or conviction on one verse. And a lot of us tend to do that. And so if all I had was chapter 1, this is what I'd be able to say about creation God made man in his image and likeness. Is that true? Absolutely it's true. But I also wouldn't know that there's an emphasis here on God's personal involvement. And I wouldn't know that there's an emphasis on his creativity 
and on the physicality of atoms. There's an emphasis on that, and it's in comparison and contrast to what we're going to see next. Because not only do we find here mankind's original physicality, but we also find mankind's original spirituality, his spirituality. Look at the rest of verse 7. And the Lord God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. In many ways, we are similar with other creatures. And this term living creature is used in chapter 1, but nowhere is there any description of God giving the breath of life to any animal. This is unique. And what it tells us is that we're not just physical creations, but we're spiritual creations. We have within us something unique from all the animals, from our pets, from uh, the domesticated animals, from all of the majestic creatures that roam the earth. We have something unique and different. We have the breath of God. We have been given a connection. We are made in his image and likeness. And though we are physical and being physical, we share some characteristics with the other living creatures. We are a living creature in a spiritual sense that no one else on earth is, that no other creature, no other animal, that anyone outside of humankind can claim. And it's this breath of life. It's the breath of God. And this is what made Adam animated. This is what made Adam above and beyond just the creatures of the field. No one is described, no other creature, I should say, is described in this way. And there's a sense in which the breathing by God's Spirit, it likely represents some image. Because the New Testament tells us that, first of all, you likely know, in both Greek and Hebrew, the words, the words for spirit are linked to the words for breath. And what you've got here is you've got God breathing the breath of life into Adam and in doing so, giving him life, but giving him life as one who is made in the image and likeness of God. And what does the Bible tell us? Jesus said in John 4, God is spirit. God is spirit. And here God breathes, again, it's a linked word, breath and spirit are linked together. He breathes into Adam, and Adam becomes a living creature in the image and likeness of his creator. It's possible also that this is a rooted in our understanding of, of the way we think, our rationality. In the book of Job, there's a reference to this. In Job 32, it says, but it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty. Do you see how those things are linked? It is the spirit in man the breath of the Almighty that makes him understand, the ability to reason. I know you love your cats. I know you love your dogs. They're not reflecting right now on the meaning of life because you're not home. They might not like the storm. They might wonder where you are, but it has nothing to do with their identity. But somehow we are made in the image of God so that there's a self-reflection. There's an understanding that we can think through matters that are eternal. And this is what's hinted at it's being made in the image of God. It's not revealed in chapter 1, but it's made clear here in chapter 2, mankind's original spirituality. By the way, this is also likely a matter of conscience. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 20, we read this. The spirit of man is the lamp of Yahweh, searching all his innermost parts. The conscience is a reflection of the image of God. And when God breathed the breath of life into Adam, he was completing and filling out the image and likeness of God 
in its creation in such a way that not any other creature on earth would experience or would know. So our original creation is, involves physicality and it involves spirituality. It also involves a calling, mankind's original calling. Look with me at verse 8 and notice what God says. And the Lord God, or what God does, I should say, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. There's some, there's some distinction. The garden was evidently in Eden, and yet we use the phrase the Garden of Eden, and we call it Eden. Eden evidently was a vast realm, and the garden was a part of it. And some people think that God's intention, these are all the what-ifs of the Bible that we don't know how to answer, God's intention was that Adam and Eve would have spread the nature of this garden into the whole earth, into all of Eden, if not the whole earth. We don't know that. But nevertheless, notice what it says. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So there's a purpose in this. There's a placing of Adam in a specific location in a garden or in a kind of orchard is what we're going to see. Maybe it's a kind of royal park. Uh, skip down to verse 15 and notice you see the same thing. Uh, Yahweh, the Lord God, took the man and put him. It's a different word. It's the idea of setting. Setting with the idea of settling or setting with an idea of resting. He put the man in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Some translations say to guard it, to work it and keep it. Do you see this is a calling? And let me just point out that those words to work and to keep are words that are later used for service in the tabernacle. This is the calling of Adam. The calling of Adam, he was given a job to do. He was like his creator, he was to work. What had God done? He had worked the six days of creation, and on the Sabbath, what? He rested. And Adam and Eve were to manifest that same image, that same likeness by being workers, by being productive, by, by recognizing there's a purpose to their existence. Evidently, Adam was to live and serve in the garden in ways that reflected the maker's image and likeness. Some people think, I don't quite land here yet, but some people think it's a valid hypothesis that the point of the garden, if not the whole earth, it was intended to be a kind of sanctuary or a temple. Some people see temple and, and, and sanctuary language all the way through the creation narrative. That seems a little pressed to me, but it's an interesting idea because the point, one thing is true. God was setting up a place where Adam would have purpose and where he would commune with Adam. That's what we're going to find. And by the way, that's kind of what happens in a temple or a tabernacle. That was what God was about. He had created Adam and Eve. He had created them in his likeness and in his image. As such, they were workers. They had physicality, and yet also they had spirituality, and they had a calling. And having a calling, it represented their purpose. And one, things, the thing, one of the things he was doing was he was manifesting a willingness to connect and to commune with Adam and with Eve. Let me point out one more thing about verse 15. Would you look at it one more time? The word at the end of the verse where it says, keep it, it could well mean, in fact, it often means to guard it. And we wonder if perhaps keeping and guarding the garden implies some kind of pending attack. We don't know that. 
We're not sure because, as we said before, the Bible is silent about the creation of the spiritual forces, but we know that the angels fell. We know that there was rebellion, and it's, I wonder if the guarding of the garden was because there would soon be an attack upon the garden. There was, and we know that Adam failed in that. Now, can I just pause here and give you three practical implications from these things that we've seen? The first is this. The physical body matters to God. Our physicality is created by Him, and it matters to Him. And that rules out two extremes that are opposites, but both of them demean the body and they demean God. The first extreme is the idea that what you do with your body, whether it's sexual sin or whether it's abusing your body and not caring for your body, treating it poorly, chasing after unhealth and disease as opposed to health. If we have an attitude that says, you know, our bodies don't really matter. These aren't going to last. What we're doing is we're demeaning the idea that God's original intention was rooted in the forming of a body out of the dust of the ground. The other extreme is the idea that the body is to be hated. The body is to be, is to be treated as evil and the implication is that bodily needs and bodily desires are in and of themselves inherently evil. That also demeans the God of creation. He created us as embodied beings. And we have to be careful about our attitude, about our bodies, that we don't treat them in some way that dismisses the high value that God places on the body. This has been on some of our minds recently because of the issues of people in our church family who are struggling with health issues at the end of their life. And our choices and what we would wish we could do as far as, as the, if we were making decisions as far as the release of their suffering, and yet God is the one who has made life. And even though we're now in this fallen world, He still is the Lord over life, and He cares what happens with our bodies. I think it's important to acknowledge. The second practical implication from this is that what you have here is you have this beautiful picture that completes, it fills out our understanding of our Creator that He is not only the sovereign God of Genesis 1, but He's the personal God of Genesis 2. He is not only the transcendent God who literally speaks the worlds into existence, but He is also the personal God who individually, warmly crafts Adam in His likeness and image. And if you don't hold both of those truths about God, if you don't hold them together, then you will end up with a truncated or inaccurate view of the great God of heaven. You will either see him as so transcendent and disconnected that he has nothing to do with life, or on the other hand, you will treat him as so individualistic and personal that you disrespect him as the God of creation. And what we find here is that pictured in the very way he made us, he made us with physicality, he also made us with spirituality, he gave us a calling, and so he was personally engaged. The Lord God did this, but it's the same Lord God who spoke the world, the universe, into existence. And so you have to hold both of those truths, that he is the personal God of, with a personal touch, but he is also the sovereign transcendent creator at the very same time. Let me give you a third implication from this. The purposes of our lives cannot be divorced 
from the design of our beings. The purposes of our lives cannot be separated from the way God has made us. And God has made us at the very least, and as I've already said this morning, there is more that is revealed about who we are and how we're made. But at the very least, we exist in this physical world, and that has significance. But we are spiritual beings, therefore we have the ability to be connected with the God of the universe, and we have purpose. In no less ways that God put Adam and Eve in the garden, in no less ways God put you and me in our lives, in our circumstances, in our families. He put us in our relationships. He put us in 2024 in Santa Barbara, California. He has us here, and there's a calling for us to reflect His glory. You say, oh, but everything's messed up. How much better reason for us to obey and seek after and find and manifest the calling of God in our lives. It's important to see that. Mankind's physicality, his spirituality, and his calling. But this also shows us a great deal about our God. And so I want you to see that somewhat quickly here. Look at it with me. The Lord God's creative, first of all, his splendor. Go back up to verse 8 for a moment. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. And look at verse 9. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight. This is the splendor of God, God's beauty. God creates trees that were functional. We're going to get there. They were useful. We're going to get there. But before that, they're beautiful. And... As we read this, God planting a garden with beautiful trees, we have to remind ourselves, who were the first hearers or readers of these words? Where were they? They were in a desert. They had wandered for 40 years in a desert. And here's a reminder of the splendor and the beauty of their God. Now, I suppose you could argue, and some do, that the desert can be a beautiful place. But if you go to a beautiful, a beautiful setting that includes greenery, that includes abundance, that includes color, you recognize the splendor of the Creator. And I just want to challenge your thinking about this, that we have splendor and beauty now. We live in an incredible place. I mean, we, we have the beauty of the ocean, we have the beauty of the mountains, and we see them every day to where sometimes they become we forget them. If there's that kind of splendor now, just here in Santa Barbara, what must there have been before the fall and before the flood? What must there have been on God's earth before everything fell into sin? This is God's creative splendor. And Moses is very specific to say the trees, they were pleasant to the sight He's describing the creative glory, the splendor of our God. It's not just that. Also in verse 9, the last part of the verse, there's his creative provision. Not just his creative splendor, but his creative provision. Look in verse 9, at the end, uh, second part of the verse. God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything they would need was there. So it wasn't just that God was 
creative and splendorous and wondrous in his creation, but he was practical. He provided what was needed. The trees were good for food, and then there was this tree of life, and then there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we'll deal with those next week in the text that follows, but the reality seems to be that whatever, if you ate of those trees, that was what was produced. So if you ate of the fruit of the tree of life, life was produced, and if you ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that was what it would produce. But one way or another, it was everything they needed. And we'll show you next week, even the restriction from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was something they needed. This is God's provision. He gives them everything. He gives them everything necessary. His useful provision. He met their every need, and that provision would satisfy their appetite. It met their needs. And then you find the Lord God's creative splendor, His provision, and also His abundance. And you look here at the record of the rivers and the headwaters. And once again, the first readers, they were where? They were in a desert. And you have Eden supplied by the headwaters of this incredible source of water and it would divide into four different rivers. And we don't know the specifics of these rivers. There are some who believe that we just have lost the names of the first two. And then, of course, Tigris and Euphrates, we know those rivers. But you have to remember, this was before the flood, and this was also before the fall. And so I don't know that we can identify any of these things with any kind of certainty. But the readers were told that this was a real place, that this had really happened. This was God's abundance. And there's even a description of the gold. Now, I've thought about this a lot this week, and I'm, I'm troubled by it. The best I can come up with, let me give you my explanation. Why did it matter to Adam and Eve that there was gold? There's no economy. We're going to spend it anywhere, right? It evidently was a statement, once again, of the abundant beauty of God. And it was a clarity later on when gold was necessary, as in a sense, for survival, when it was part of sustenance, it was that God is abundant. He doesn't have to borrow. He is the creator of all things. He is the source of all things. So it wasn't that Adam and Eve, they found a place where they had to mine gold as part of their work before the fall. That was not the case. But Moses, in recounting this story from the Holy Spirit, is including the fact that this is the abundance of your creator. You wonder if there'll be enough gold. You want precious stones, which are held to be so valuable. God's the one that put them there to begin with. He's the creator. His abundance is astonishing. And so we don't really know where this was. It was before the flood and before the fall. But one thing we do know in all of this, there's just this overwhelming goodness and greatness of God. And we should stop for just a moment. I, I, I don't know if you recognize, we are, we are what is called in the ecclesiastical, in, in the ecclesiology world, in the world of church structures, we are low church people. I don't have a, a vestment on. Uh, we don't have uh, choirs and candles. You know, the, the, what they describe as the liturgy is the bells and smells, you know, of the way some churches gather together, that kind of thing. And to our discredit, our, our, our worship space is very functional. 
Uh, we kind of go back to Martin Luther, who called his church a mouth house. Uh, it centers around the pulpit. And, uh, but to our discredit, sometimes those of us that are low church, we don't give enough appreciation to the image and likeness of God that still continues in the incredible artistry that he has still given to some of his children. Artistry is an incredible gift. And when artistry is used in ways that are appropriate, we don't have to, we don't have to talk about when artistry is used for vulgar or inappropriate things. Just set that aside. When artistry is used, whether it's graphic artistry, whether it's painting, whether it's music, whether it's, it's creativity, and I even go so far as to layer this over into technology. I think there's, there's a knowledge of technology that produces things that are such great gifts. All of this is a gift from God in His providence, but more than that, it reflects the glory of God. The next time you watch a movie that moves you, and this happens to me not as much as it used to, but I remember every now and then I've had the experience of watching a movie and I'm so moved by it that it, 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 it does stun me. That's a demonstration of artistry. And that artistry is a reflection of the image and likeness of God in people. And we need to recognize that. We need to encourage it. We need to thank God for it. And we need to know exactly what it is we're seeing when we see that. The maker's nature and our design. And so you look at this. You look at Genesis 2. And you see mankind's original creation is physicality, is spirituality, is calling. You see this evidenced in God's splendor and His provision and His abundance. And once again, you come back and you say, look at what they lost. Look at what they lost. Look at what we've lost. There are some Genesis scholars that suggest that one of the things Moses is doing is he's laying out the story in such a way that we cannot escape the folly of chapter 3, of what an absolutely insane decision it was for our first parents. And of course, the danger of that, I'm jumping onto chapters down the road, so but I can't help but say it. That same insanity is reflected in the choices we make. Our choices of disobedience. Our choices of rebellion. Our choices of stubbornness. Our choices of doubting God's goodness. We'll get there. But what you have here is a story of regrets. It's a story of folly. Because look at all they lost. And I think that's hinted at in the text. Because the last thing I want to show you today is that there is indeed in this text, there's this narrative acknowledgement of what I'd call today shadows. That it wasn't that there was anything bad in God's creation. It was still all very good. But there was still, there are hints in the way Moses lays the story out. He's giving us foreshadows. And we find those in verses five and six. You may not have noticed I skipped those, but go back up to verses 5 and 6. This is after the creation, but before the fall. So this is between the middle of day 6 of creation, chapter 1, and the middle of chapter 3. Look at what we see. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, that likely means weeds. 
and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. That likely is, for example, wheat. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, welled up, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Now you say, can you explain that to me creation-wise? And the answer to that is no, I can't, other than to say this was before the fall. But before the fall, Moses stops and he says, oh, by the way, let me tell you some things that weren't there yet. Bush of the field, cultivated plants, and rain. In some way or another, the way that original creation worked, those things hadn't shown up yet, or the water was from the ground, the mist of the ground. The idea in Hebrew seems to be the idea of welling up, water welling up out of the ground. But why would he stop and say that? It, it adds nothing to the story. He, he doesn't come back in chapter 2 and address any of this. But by the time you get to chapter 3, and then you get on to chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, here's what you have. No bush of the field, but after the fall, what does God say to Adam? Now there will be thorns and thistles. And after the fall, what did God say to Adam about his work in cultivating the ground? He says, now you will labor with the toil, the sweat of your brow. And I don't need to tell you today, as we look out the window, the concerns we have about floods. It didn't happen before, but after the fall, evidently rain began, and there was this judgment of water that happened later in the book. And the people of Israel knew these things. They knew these events. And as they would read what we call chapter 2, they would have read about the bush of the field, and they would have thought, yeah, but there's thorns and thistles now. And they would have read about cultivated crops, and they would have recognized, especially in a desert, how do you cultivate crops? And they would have remembered the flood. You see, these are shadows of what's to come. Moses includes the not yet evidences of sin, curse, and the fall. And this brings us full cycle back to what became of the very good heavens and earth that God created? That's what Moses is telling us. This is what became of the heavens and earth. Here, there's all of this wonder and glory. There's all of this creativity and abundance and beauty, but it's headed for chaos. But what the book of Genesis tells us, as part of the rest of God's word, is that God is not satisfied to leave it that way. God will not be satisfied. We are but dust, but we also are of glory. God will not forsake us. Even though we're made low, we are also made high. We are, we are physical, we are spiritual, but we are forgiven in our sin. God has made a way to rescue his creation, to redeem it. He's not going to leave it in this way. The New Testament refers to this in the same terminology that we've seen in our text today. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. What's he getting at? Well, he explains it in the rest of the verse. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. We find the spirit of life, forgiveness, and the gospel in Jesus Christ and what he has done. And so this is the grand scope of salvation history. You have creation 
And we're reading here about the glory of creation. And then you have the fall. And then you have the plan of redemption. But through all of it, there's the purpose and goal of restoration. And what this was will be, but so much greater. And you and I will have a part of that. And right now, it's not that we have to wait, but right now we can share and show the glory of God. We can live in obedience to Him. We can live in faithfulness to Him. And in doing so, as God's people, we make a difference. And we're not going to bring heaven to earth. We're not going to accomplish the fulfillment of the kingdom of God in this culture. That's just not going to happen. But we are a colony of heaven, as it were. We have the opportunity to show everything you long for, God can give you. He can give it to you now, and he promises it to you eternally. It's the great promise. The term that people are using these days is human flourishing. Let me borrow that term for your takeaway today. We flourish when we remember and reflect God's nature and our purpose. That's the path to flourishing. When you remember the nature of your creator, and you also remember the reason he made us. And he made us, though we are but dust, he made us to reflect his glory. And when you pursue those truths, it's the beginning of flourishing in your life. Let's pray together. Father, our hearts ache when we think about all our first parents lost. But our hearts rejoice when we see the promises of the gospel and we know what you intend to do in restoring and making all things new. Give us a clearer sense of who you are and give us a clear understanding of who we are made to be. May you be pleased as you see us in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, never forgetting who our God is and never forgetting who we are through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.